Right, welcome to episode 74 of the Ski Podcast, and thanks for joining us, uh, uh, listener. Firstly, as always, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for sponsoring the podcast. And listener, if you're joining us for the first time today, please make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you have a minute, please do give, uh, do give us a review on iTunes as it helps other people find us. Uh, what I'd like to do first, though, is I'd like to start off by welcoming my special guest today. We have Sarah Burden from the Morzine Tourist Office. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good morning. Very good. Thank you. Excellent. And we also have regular guest and friend of the show, Mike Richards. Hi, Mike. How are you? Very well. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me back. No worries. So we're covering two countries today, France, or maybe three if Wales counts as a separate one. But of course oh, it does. Of course it does. <laughs> France, Wales and uh, and England. Let's start by uh, finding out our traditional question. When did you ski or snowboard last? Sarah, can I ask you first? Well, um, I was lucky enough to be out in France for the winter in Morzine, so I was able to ski tour a fair bit over the winter. There was even skiing happening here still this week. Great. So when were you last on the hill? Then? For myself, it was probably about two or three weeks ago. I've uh, passed on to the summer sport of mountain biking now. That, that's not bad, though. So you were skiing in kind of mid to late uh, May going ski touring. Exactly. Skiing right up to the end of May um, and the touring. Yeah. Cool. And so were you taking a lift? Because you, you, you're based in Morzine, right? So you must have taken a lift higher up and then toured from there? Um, at, towards the end of May, yes, it was going up to Avoria. Uh, no lifts were actually running until last weekend when they did open for normal skiing, for alpine yeah. skiing. Um, but we could drive up to Avoria and tour right. up from there. But okay. right up until late April, we were able to ski from Morsey as well. Okay. And and Mike, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer because we've had you do a few snow reports on the show before. But go on, tell us, when, you, when did you uh, ski last? A little longer for me, not much though. Uh, Wednesday, the 6th of May, um, in the Bracken Beacons, hike to A for effort, F for snow. <laughs> right. And, and remind me how many days uh, you got skiing in the end, despite not being able to go overseas? That, that was my 23rd day on snow in the Beacons, and my ski partner, Chris, managed to get his 40th. Yeah, and you know, that is amazing. And, uh, you know, I was very jealous to to hear about that. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll all get the chance to uh, to go skiing again uh, next season. Um, you know, based on everything I know now, I'm very positive about it. But um, I just caught up with uh, Katie Crow from Battleface Travel Insurance to give us a, an update on the travel situation uh, a little bit earlier on. So let's have a listen to that. Great. So um, hi there, Katie. Thanks for joining me again. How are you today? I'm great, thanks, Ian. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. It's a, it's been over a year now of travel corridors, air bridges, traffic lights, and could be uh, quite tricky to keep up. So I found our, our chat last time uh, useful. And I know that uh, Matt Hancock, who's not really seen as a bastion of travel, but he claimed last week that restoring international travel is an incredibly important goal. Uh, so thanks, uh, Matt. If you could uh, change things so we can actually go somewhere, that would be even better. Uh, now, yesterday, I saw uh, your name in the papers. I think it was in the Telegraph or something like that. Uh, but Battleface had a new survey out saying that even though we've got this traffic light system, a lot of people are still prepared to go away on holiday to amber countries anyway. I wondered if you could give us some stats or data on that. 
Yeah, that's right. So we just um, conducted some research last week um, looking at uh, destinations and how Brits, you know, are thinking about the summer. And it was really interesting to see that 48% of Brits would consider taking a holiday to Spain right now, um, even though that, that Spain is on the amber destination list. Um, the, the study also revealed that um, almost um, two thirds, 64%, said that they would consider Spain in the 18 to 34 age group and more in, in the um, slightly older age group, the 35 to 54s, 52% would consider going to Spain this summer. So some really positive um, stats there um, with regards to the sort of the hunger for travel right now. Uh, for sure. So um, that's even though there's a uh, bit the result of that would be quarantine. A lot of people are still thinking about, you know, are prepared to go and to do this holidays. And you mentioned Spain. I saw there was some data in there, like you know, it was 40% or 42% for France as well, 46% for Italy. So a lot of people are, are still prepared to, to take those holidays, despite the fact there is quarantine. Um, I'm thinking about going out. Well, I am planning to go out to Switzerland next month if I can to do some trail running I've looked into all that quarantine stuff I'm prepared to do it but I'm banking on the um, five days test and release side of things which I think does make a difference yeah no absolutely in fact we asked that question in our survey and based on the current amber requirements for a 10-day home quarantine plus testing 41% of Brits said they'd be willing to undertake this in order to travel and also, um, half of the respondents claim they'd be willing to complete a quarantine for five days, as well as the required testing um, in order to, to go abroad this summer. So some really interesting data there, um, again, showing the real appetite for travel this summer. Yeah, well, that I mean, it, the, the price is a factor for sure, because I did some research into it. And I've actually got my, my notes written on a little board over there. And I kind of worked out the three ways... I've narrowed it down to three different suppliers and it's going to cost between £225 and £280 to do the uh, the required tests, which um, would actually involve me going up to uh, to Gatwick and getting it done there. So it's it's not cheap. If you want to be able to do it, you have to add that cost onto the holiday cost. Absolutely. It's a significant cost for people looking at travelling this summer. Um, and, you know, I would hope that the government are going to come out with some some new plans um, next week. Uh, I hear that in the press yesterday there was speculation that um, foreign holidays could be saved for fully vaccinated British travellers under plans that are being drawn up. And perhaps in in those plans they're going to be looking at the cost of testing and um, you know maybe they're going to be reduce, reducing the amount of testing necessary given the fact that they're looking at offering travel to fully vaccinated adults. Yeah, that would that would suit me really well because I am fully vaccinated. You know, I can obviously only speak to from my own um, you know point of uh, view. But I actually did download the uh, the NHS app the other day and went through all a, quite a, a rigmarole of um, you know getting um, confirmed on it. You have to take send a photo of your passport, stick in your NHS number, uh, send a, a selfie and a video of yourself. But eventually, it's all been. Uh, gone through and I can see it on there and it has the details of my vaccinations on there and I know that in Europe I think on the 1st of July they're planning to introduce their own kind of Covid passport to show vaccinations hopefully we're going to find out that NHS uh, app will be our equivalent and uh, you know that will certainly make it you know I appreciate the listener you may not have 
double vaccinations, uh, you know, at this point. Um, but, um, you know, an increasing number of people do. And if we could get, uh, you know, allow travel through that, then that would be much, much better. No, definitely. I understand that last week the EU announced that from July the 1st, digital certificates, um, digital COVID certificates will be widely available across the block. And the COVID passport would allow um, lots of, um, you know, freedom of movement between the 27 member states. So it'd be interesting to see how that all pans out and whether, you know, the UK are going to follow suit. I, I know that France has, has definitely um, has eased lots of its COVID restrictions recently. Uh, they've just now ended an eight-month nightly cur curfew. You know, it's really good news that France um, will be lifting the curfew this Sunday, 10 days earlier than expected. But is that a trend we're going to see across Europe? You know, I mean, it's just with this Delta variant, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very unnerving. Yeah, who knows? Uh, we, you know, predictions uh, have become uh, increasingly difficult, but uh, certainly France is on the, uh, the right trajectory. If you think about it from the uh, the ski lift point of view, lifts are now running at sixty five percent capacity, I think, and then later this month they're on schedule to go up to one hundred percent capacity again. So let's keep our fingers crossed on that. You know, there it's the first time I think on the show for some time that we've actually had some some positive news. Um, but I'd just like to remind the listener that is it, there, there's a useful tool on the Battleface website, which I think is called Sherpa. And what you do, and tell me if I'm wrong uh, or I've got this right, uh, Katie, but you put in your destination, the country that you're going to, and then it'll deliver all the information in respect of uh, what the current uh, entry requirements are and what the requirements will be on return and also, importantly, what a Foreign and Commonwealth Office guidance is. Absolutely. And also um, gives details of, you know, what sort of um, paperwork you need to take, what testing needs to be carried out, um, you know, prior to arrival, upon arrival. Do you need travel insurance to enter the country? Because a lot of countries are now stipulating the need for travel insurance before you can actually enter the destination. So that that um, that app gives you all those details. Um, the Sherpa app is brilliant. Uh, gives yeah, you and, all and it's, it's up to date you know at any point right yeah absolutely it's completely up to date yeah, yeah. well i think that that's a point because you know digging around the internet to try and find out what's going on and particularly with switzerland i found it so complicated because there are lots of different websites you get directed to uh, etc so um listen have a look at have a look at that the green list um you know is due to be updated on the 28th of uh, june you know, initially, I was uh, I've been pretty confident that France is going to be added, uh, you know, around this time and most other European countries. I think that's less likely to happen now, which is a hugely disappointing, but probably just around the day this podcast comes out on Monday, the 21st uh, of uh, June, there'll be some kind of update on that in advance of the changes on the 28th. Uh, but, you know, let's just keep our fingers crossed that it. That the next time we speak, Katie, in another you know few weeks' time, we've actually got you know some of those green shoots are, are turning into yeah. um, the ability to go on holiday. Absolutely. Well, I'm hoping to go. I'm still hoping to go to France at the beginning of July from our you know rebooked ski trip. We're still holding out hope. Cool. Okay. Well, hopefully, but right. let's let's speak again in a couple of weeks, Katie, and see what the story is then. Thanks very much. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Bye. So, you know, that was kind of interesting. Now, off off uh, screen uh, just now, Mike asked me if, a, if a, a, you know, a ski trip was still possible right now. Now, I kind of think it 
probably is if you want to. You know, you could go to uh, France if you were double vaccinated. Les Des Alpes is open. Uh, Val d'Isère is open. Teen opens this weekend for the summer ski glaciers. Uh, ski there. Come back to the UK. Um, if you were double vaccinated, you'd have to quarantine for up to five days, assuming that you uh, tested negative on your five-day test and release. So it could be done. You tempted, Mike? <laughs> um, I am tempted. It's just whether they pull the rug from underneath our feet, as they have done quite recently. That's that's the. I think that's the biggest concern for most people. Is the uh, the lead-in time is uh, very short for for some of these things. Yeah, I mean, I know that's true. Well, we're, we're, we'll we'll keep our eye on that one. But the, the good news is there are still people skiing uh, around the world. And I say around the world because um, I'm really pleased. Got a couple of snow reports uh, for you, listener, this week. Firstly, we've got Richie Owen, who reports from Mount Hutt in New Zealand. And we've also got Tammy from Mint Snowboarding, who was on the snow in Avoriaz last weekend for what I think is their first ever day of summer skiing. So let's have a listen to them. Kia ora team, Richie from Mount Hutt here. Well, opening day 2021, Mount Hutt, June the 11th. What a day. We were um, super lucky with the weather being um, so nice. And um, yeah, obviously the opening of the new Norwest Express 8-speeder high-speed chairlift, which is um, pretty exciting stuff. We had record numbers up here at Mount Hutt, um, 2,235 I think the final number was, um, which is record opening numbers for us. Obviously the weather... You know, uh, on the back of a COVID year, um, people do pretty frothy to get up here and, um, and get amongst snow conditions. We were lucky enough um, a week before opening to get a, a substantial snowfall from that storm in the Canterbury region. Um, we were, you know, in the vicinity of sort of three metres to two metres snow base at the top of the mountain down to about 40 to 50 at the base. So we had really, really good cover. Um, although that snow had um, got a little bit firm over the last few days, it just um, bit of water with it and froze. So um, it, it wasn't a powder day by all means, but um, there was still plenty of uh, woohoos and chahoos going down across the mountain, that's for sure. Yep, so opening day was really successful. We're, we're super stoked to be open and um, yeah, looking forward to the rest of the season. Hi listeners, I'm Tammy from Mint Snowboard School in Morzine in the French Alps. It's the 13th of June, 2021, and I'm sitting in my garden just outside Morzine in the middle of a little heat wave, and it's 28 degrees in the shade. This morning, I went snowboarding in Avoriaz. I mean, I've been summer snowboarding before, but only on a glacier, never in the Port de Soleil. What makes this even more unusual in this, these strange times is that we were riding actual working ski lifts. Now in France, the ski lifts have been shut since March 2020 due to the pandemic, so it really was a novelty. This winter, I've just been split boarding, going up tens of thousands of metres, so it seemed rather extravagant sitting and relaxing on a chairlift, taking me up to the top of some groomed slopes, but I rather liked it. Here in France, the COVID restrictions are being lifted due to a decrease in the infection rates and ski lifts can legally open again. To celebrate, Avoria has opened the lifts for a long weekend for skiing, along with the beginning of the mountain bike season here. This spring in the Alps, it's been really cold, really low temperatures, with plenty of dumps of fresh snow at low altitudes throughout May. So it's been great for ski touring and splitboarding, and there's lots of snow still around. So what was it like snowboarding in June up in Avoriaz? 
Well, not surprisingly, it was pretty slushy. Due to the warm temperatures, it's obviously not freezing at night. It was also really quiet, especially on Friday. A few more people over the weekend. No lift queues. Obviously, there were COVID restrictions in place, so wearing masks in the lift queues, although there weren't any lift queues, uh, wearing masks on the chairlifts. Um, but other than that, it seemed pretty normal, to be honest. The vibe on the mountain was pretty special. Um, kind of a mix of beginning of season excitement, people charging about at a fast pace, and then mixed in with kind of just a gratitude of being up in the mountain and riding lifts again. And then there was also the laid-back end-of-season vibe, slushy runs in the sun, catching up with friends who we hadn't seen for ages due to all the lockdowns. All in all, I feel really grateful to Avoriaz for putting on this, this special weekend, giving us a taste of riding the lifts again. Um, all I can say is roll on next winter to open ski lift, travel restrictions being a thing of the past, and we look forward to seeing you all out here. If you want to see some photos of us snowboarding up in Avoriaz this weekend, then check out our Instagram, at Mint Snowboarding. See you soon. Bye. So thanks to Tammy and Richie uh, for those reports. And, you know, it's so good to hear about people just enjoying their time on snow and, and the record numbers in Mount Hutt. And uh, if you'd like to know more about skiing in New Zealand, uh, can I suggest you take a, a listen to episode 73? We had Paul Anderson, CEO of NZ Ski, on for that episode. Uh, and talking of old episodes, we've got over 100 that you can catch up on. So if you're a new listener, you know, have a look at the website, skipodcast.com. Uh, have a look for a tag or category that takes your interest, you know, maybe Dave Riding or St. Anton or Ski Sunday or Switzerland and, and catch up. Uh, but let's go back to today. You know, it was great to have Tammy reporting from Avoriaz. I'm going to keep that Port Disley theme going because I'm joined by Sarah Burden from the Morzine Tourist Office. And I've got a bunch of questions for you, Sarah. Now, the first one, really, brilliant news that skiing was on offer last weekend. Um I'm assuming that must mean, is it the first time there's ever been summer skiing? Yes, it is the first time that anywhere in the Port de Soleil has actually opened for summer skiing. So it's all quite an exciting, uh, quite an exciting weekend for us. For the locals, we've often been able to do a little bit of ski touring up into kind of late May, early June. But it's really rare to have this quantity of snow still um, this far into the summer. Yeah, so make us feel bad then. How good was the snow last winter? So, uh, yeah, we were very lucky last winter. It was an incredible winter and it just seemed to carry on snowing. Depending who you speak to, obviously, with how good or bad it was that the month of um, April and May, we carried on getting a lot of snow. A few people were getting upset about their gardens and their veg patches not progressing as they should. But it was pretty incredible to be able to be skiing in such good snow right up to late May. And even now, while it may not be fresh powder up there in June, it's incredible, incredible conditions. Yeah, well, that just proves the old adage that you can't please all the people all the time, can you? you exactly. Exactly. That's on. it. What, what kind of numbers of people did you see skiing then uh, uh, this weekend? Because, so, you know, when, when La, La Clusa did a, 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 like a trial a while ago, and I know they reduced the numbers and they had like a lottery system, 
because it was vastly oversubscribed. So how did it work in Aurora? So here it was um, it was down to actually passes. So passes were sold. Um, there was only uh, 16 euros to go up for the morning of skiing. We opened just for the morning, but there were two and a half thousand passes that were sold over the three days of opening. So it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday of last weekend. So good numbers but kept low enough to ensure that it wasn't crowding, that we were still able to ensure that the distancing was going on the lifts. So France has actually put into place a 65% capacity on all lifts, which will be the same for the summer usage, um, whether it's skiing, biking, hiking. Right, yeah, and I think I reported on that in the last uh, episode because it's yeah. it's 65 now and it's due to go up to about 100% by the end of June, is that right? Potentially, yes, it should be going up. We're, we're um, in the lucky situation now where we're seeing lots of restrictions lifting. We're actually having some restrictions lifting um, yesterday for masks outdoors and also this Sunday for our curfew, um, which weren't due to be lifted till the end of the month. So... We're in a very lucky situation in France where numbers are dropping quite drastically. So uh, we're looking forward yeah, to quite a good no, summer it, here. If only it was, you know, consistent, like it would be really low in the UK and then really yeah. low in France at the same time. So could you explain a little bit more about the relationship between Morzine and Avoriaz? You know, they're two different resorts, but they seem to be very close together. Would you sort of see them as being siblings or something like that? Yes, yeah, so we are um, two, two separate resorts, but we're actually under the same town, so the same commune, uh, which means we have the same uh, local government uh, looking after us. And um, we, while the two resorts are, are quite distinct, very different as well from the sort of traditional village and the more purpose-built resort, um, we are very much actually under the same town. So Euphoria was actually created by a Morzinois, somebody from Rosine, skier Jean Voinet, who went away to the Olympics in the early 60s in Squaw Valley and came back with the crazy idea of building a ski resort on the cliffs above Morzine. Is that the Varnay glasses? Is that the exactly. same person? Yep, that's the same person. He's, I think, now better known for his sunglasses than for his skiing prowess. But back in the day, he was um, one of France's best skiers. Yeah, it's interesting. I shared some photos of the skiing going on in uh, Voriaz last weekend and a couple of people said, oh, you know, the architecture there or that is so horrible. But I actually really like the design of it because it's been specifically mm. created to be integral to those cliffs that you mentioned. That's exactly it. It is It is very much, it's a love it or hate it. I'm like you, I think it's actually amazing because it's from the idea was that from Morzine, um, you couldn't actually effectively see that there was a resort up there, that it was basically an extension of the cliffs. So the idea was for everybody living in Morzine, it didn't create an eyesore up on the cliffs overlooking them. And I think it has worked and it is quite interesting. It's different, it's unique. It's not a plain gray concrete box. And all the wood clouding as well. It's part of the whole um, environmentally friendly approach to Avoria, the same as it being a car-free resort. Uh, all the wood that's used there is natural local wood and is left to kind of weather with the with the years passing. Yeah, I think I think that uh, I agree with all of that, and uh, I really like that car-free uh, aspect uh, to it. There's a kind of central area, you know, within all the buildings, which is brilliant for mm. kind of kids in in winter. And then in summer, there were loads of activities going on there when I saw it, etc. But I've got a key question for you. Is it pronounced Avoriaz or Avoria? Uh, officially, it should be A, Avoria, but that does depend who's, who's saying it. But yes, it is Avoria. 
But if you were saying it right, okay, it's a Voria. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll never say that incorrectly <laughs> again. If we've previously had um, our judge from uh, Alley Cats uh, on the show uh, when we were we did the uh, special about electric vehicles in ski resorts. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And also Dom Turner from a company called Skiology. We had him on in episode 65 talking about um, you know the sustainability and environmental uh, side of things. And in both of those cases were prompted by the excellent uh, organization called Montan Vert, which is based in Morzine. And it's such a great example, I think, mm. of a community acting together to improve sustainability. And I, I noticed in your most recent press pack that Morzine is going to be bidding for the Flocon uh, Ver accreditation. So I'm really interested, uh, Sarah, you know, can you tell us why Morzine is so focused on sustainability, why you're kind of maybe a bit ahead of other resorts? Well, so there's, I mean, I think there's two things there. There's very much the community-led approach that you've mentioned there with Montanvert. So in France, the kind of the, it's called the Vie Associative. That's the associations or the not-for-profits. They play a really important part in uh, life in local towns in France. And so Montanvert has done an incredible job of, um, I could say motivating local people, but I guess that's also partly that a lot of the locals were very motivated already to go out and work for the environment. And then the other thing is that the Mary, so again, that's the Mary, the town hall that covers uh, both Morzine and Avoria, um, the main part of their agenda for the elections in last spring was um, the environment, um, was the sustainability of our two resorts. So the Flock on Vert approach we're doing is actually a, it's quite a huge project with both Morzine and Avoria. So we've got the tourist offices, the lift pass, the lift company, sorry, and the town hall working together along with their local businesses to go for that. And when you see about us being about sort of ahead of the curve, I would actually say one of the reasons we chose Flock on Vert is because we're aware that there's a huge amount of work to do. And with Flock on Vert, it's not a tick a few boxes, that's done, here's a nice little logo we can put up. It's actually very much a process of continual improvement. Yeah, so and it, I mean, I, I've looked at the Flockant Ver before yeah. I went out to uh, Les Arts because I think they got their accreditation mm. within the last year. Yes. And there's, you know, there's relatively few resorts who have it. It is mm. not a simple thing that you can just stick a logo on and be accused of greenwashing. You have yeah. to tick a huge number of boxes to get this accreditation, which is awarded by an organisation called Mountain Riders, I think. Yes, that's it. It's mountain riders that run it, um, a very much respected uh, mountain environmental com- um not-for-profit out here in France and it is it's a huge amount of um, auditing of checking of actually properly checking all the documentation looking at what we're doing and it's really helped us put together a proper strategy it's helped us realize some of the great things we're already doing some of the less great things and how we can improve them and get everybody together working for that. Great. Okay. And the Montanver itself, I also really like that as an organization because it seems to have brought together so many different stakeholders because there's lots of kind of, I don't know, splinter groups is probably the wrong idea, but, you know, small groups in different resorts. But this has you know, the, the, I know there's a lot of British people who live in Morzine. In fact, what is the pop- British population in Morzine? It's really high, isn't it? It's actually not as high as you'd think. I think we're it's only around 10% of the Morzine population, but there is quite a lot in the surrounding villages as well. Okay, so... Although yeah. it's over 50, it is around 50% of our 
tourists that come out here. Right. Okay. Well, it's still a high um, mm. proportion of the po- of the population generally. So you have the British stakeholders running tour operations, etc. You've got the French stakeholders. You've got the you know resort being involved as well. Mm. And also they brought on some quite big players to the extent that you know when I remember talking to uh, Al, this might have been uh, somewhere else, but. Uh, how you're negotiating with SNCF to see if it's possible yeah. to put on a, a direct uh, TGV from, uh, uh, from I want to say, Lille. From Lille direct down to, to, to Tonnel? Uh, that, yeah, it could be down to Tonnel. And there's been studies done on a few different um, options for, for train stations to come to here. Uh, and the idea behind Lille is that basically it makes it a lot easier for everybody to change. You haven't got that crossing Paris with luggage, with everything. It can be a bit of a hassle, particularly for families. But no, I mean, that's that's a big focus because as we all know, all the studies show it's somewhere in the region of 70% of emissions from a ski holiday that come from the travel to resorts. So while we all know it's not perfect using the lift, using everything in resort, and there's a lot we can do to improve what we're doing here, a massive impact comes from the travel I think that's brilliant. You know, Ski Flight Free is obviously a campaign that you know I've been yeah. working on supporting. That's probably how I came across that idea. And we're aware that Eurostar have kind of cut out that direct service yeah. to the Tarantes. Uh, but you know, by having it in Lille as well, I know you said a lot of your uh, international clientele are from the UK, but you could also serve people coming from Belgium and Netherlands, which are probably your second and third biggest international uh, exactly. Markets. Yes, yes. So that was, again, another one of the reasons for Lille, for the, the Dutch, the Belgians, making it easy for them to get here as well. So, yeah, it's a fantastic um, project that Montan Vert have been working really hard on and also getting kind of lots of local town halls, local tourist offices behind it as well, because um, we're very aware as well it needs to have a lot of the local resorts to show the support and to all say, yes, we will push yeah. this. Yeah. to get that to get that okay well i wish you the best uh, with that Let, let's move on to summer morzine <laughs> is known as a as a maybe the mountain bike destination you said you're already on your uh, mountain bike <laughs> i went out there in the summer of 2019 to do a trail running race but what just struck me was a number of mountain bikers everywhere uh you know just dominates the entire resort uh in summer and you know, I don't really know the history of it. I mean, why why is that? What what makes Morzine so good for mountain bikers? Well, I think there's there's quite a few things there. Firstly, we were a leader, so the first permanent downhill track in France was built in Morzine in 1997. So I think that helped to kind of put Morzine on the map on the map for mountain bikers straight away. Um, and then because of that as well, well. well We've also got a very central position in the Port de Soleil. So from Morzine, you can go up on the Pleny side, ride there and ride across to Léger. You can go up on the Super Morzine side, get over to Avoria, to Châtel and all the Swiss resorts. So basically the same as with skiing, really. You can come out here for a week and ride somewhere different every single day. Um, It's really easy access to the others. And then possibly it's one of those things that because lots of mountain bikers come here, we've got a really good fun Apre bike ski scene. So there's a good fun nightlife that I'm sure you found when you were here, or maybe less so with the trail running and focusing on the big race. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I had my kids with me, but to be honest, <laughs> it's been a long time since the Apre side of things has been, yes. uh, has been an issue. But that's interesting. If you have Apre ski, then presumably it's like Apre velo, is it? 
Exactly. Yes, or just out for a bike usually here. But right. yeah, so there's, okay. a, there's a good atmosphere in t- in the in the village, and I think that helps as well because that always makes for a more fun a more fun holiday. Um, the lifts are already open here for bikers now. They will be until mid September. Um, so we never know. Things may ease up with travel, and it may get easier over the summer. And so we'll be here and open till mid September. Yeah. Well, and God then, Almighty, I hope it gets easier for the yeah, summer. We've, <laughs> we've really got our fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing is, of course, as you came here with your kids, with your family, um, you probably saw all the activities that are on for families to do as well. The multi-pass, it's only two euros a day to get out, to use the lifts, to get to the swimming pool. So it does mean as well that mountain bikers such as yourself that want to come out and bring their family along, they're not left twiddling their thumbs waiting for something to do. Yeah, for sure. There's, I mean, we love the uh, the Alps in summer. There's always plenty, mm. to, plenty to do. But let, let's go back to skiing then. You know, I know it might seem a long way away and you've only just started your uh, summer uh, season. But, you know, when, when does a resort for win, uh, open for winter? And more importantly, can you guarantee us another excellent snow season? <laughs> oh, you're asking a lot there. Uh, so we'll open um, from mid-December for the skiing. Um, all the lifts in the Port Slay are open by the Christmas week, but some will open um, a week before. In terms of uh, the snow, if well, if only we could control that. Hey? <laughs> um, guaranteeing quite so much snow again is always hard to do, but we can always guarantee that there will be a very warm welcome, that there will be great skiing across the Port de Soleil. Um, and so there will be a good a good ski season for everyone. We sure, are expecting well, it to be pretty pretty popular this winter. We're all confident that everything will open up and we will be able to ski as we want to. Great. Well, we're really hoping that as well. That That is really uh, great to talk to you, Sarah. And thanks so much for your, uh, for your time there. Um, you know, that's really, really helpful. I look forward to coming out to Morzine again. Um, we're going to move on from Morzine to another uh, very different, uh, different M, uh, Macedonia. Now, technically, it's now North Macedonia, as football fans will know, because they're currently playing in the Euros for the first time. Uh, regular listeners will know Mike uh, with us today. He's kept us updated on the conditions in Wales throughout this winter, but he's also uh, previously featured on the uh, pod uh, talking about his experiences in Georgia. Uh, which was episode 37, Montenegro, episode 39, Japan, episode 41. Uh, all those links will be in the show notes. But among the many, many places you skied, Mike, is Macedonia. So can you tell us how on earth did Macedonia come onto your radar? Uh, I was based back at home in Wales for the uh, the 9, 10 and the 10, 11 winters, uh, looking after my parents. And even though the winters were great in Wales, I was missing my usual deep powder fix that I get in Hokkaido. Um, I took a, a short five-day trip to Switzerland and uh, Italy, hidden a few resorts there in early December, and then I had a chance in January 2011 to take a longer trip. So once I knew that I could get away for, for longer than four or five days, um, I was straight on snow forecast, seeing where the snow was falling in Europe at that time and was going to fall over the next two-week period. and. It was dumping in the east and dry in the west. Um, so I started getting on the internet and looking for my plans of how I could go to places. Russia was number one on my list. Uh, but unfortunately, it's a pain to visit on a very short notice because of their visa program. Um, the longer you leave arriving there, the cheaper it becomes. But if you want to go with a couple of days notice, it's prohibitively expensive. Um, so my choices were... Macedonia at the time, which is now North Macedonia, as you mentioned, uh, Kosovo and Montenegro, these former Yugoslavian uh, countries. 
Um, and after looking at the, the snow forecast uh, forecast of what is happening over the coming weeks, um, I chose the resort of Popova Shapka in North Macedonia. Cool. <laughs> and uh, you know, I've literally never heard of Popova Shapka before. I had to Google it and I came across like a weird story uh, behind uh, how it got its name. Do you want to share that with us? <laughs> Yeah, according to myth, um, an Orthodox priest was visiting the nearby villages trying on an evangelical mission trying to convert them, and they didn't take to it, and he was killed um, as a martyr, and the body left to be torn asunder by the wild animals on the on the mountainside. Um, and when they went back and only the priest's hat was, was left, they named the, the mountain and the area in his honour. So a pub of a shapka means priest's hat in English. So there you go, an inspiring tale to uh, to, <laughs> to, to start off your uh, holiday. Um, what what are the kind of altitudes like there? What what altitude is a resort and the top of the resort? Um, you're sort of going between uh, eighteen hundred um, in the mid part of the mountain and two thousand four hundred meters. So a, a very healthy six hundred meter vertical. At least for me, I'm used to those kinds of um, vertical distances in in Japan. But the actual resort goes down to about 1400 meters, but it's very much beginner, lower angle terrain, but you can do it top to bottom. So, you know, you're not far off a thousand meters vertical. Right. Okay. And I, th I guess a thousand meters vertical is good. I mean, you're there for a, a whole week, I think. So what was the, you obviously said the snow forecast was good. Was the snow as good as you're expecting? And, you know, what was the skiing like? Yeah, um, their tagline is, uh, the Popova Shapka tagline, resort tagline is, we have snow. Um, and in my experience, that, that wasn't the, a myth. It was very much the case of it. And that, you know, that's one of the main reasons I went. But it wasn't just a case of they had snow for that week. They regularly get, you know, six to 10 meters of snowfall uh, each and every winter. And then the base was, was solid. There was nothing showing through. Um, and, it, and it was really well set up in terms of, you could see that, you know, whoever built the resort, and it was built back in 1956 uh, for the army initially, and then it was earmarked for the 1982 Winter Olympics, but that went to Sarajevo. Um, you could see that they, they chose a good position and a good location for it because it's got a very consistent snowfall. So you mentioned it was earmarked for the 1992 Winter Olympics. That was Sarajevo. This is when Yugoslavia was a single country. So... Was Macedonia part of Yugoslavia then? It was, yeah. They were, you know, Macedonia, Serbia, Kosovo, Montenegro. Um, they were all part of that, you know, that wider Yugoslavian block as such. Yeah. And they were all vying for it, you know, for, to who was going to host the Olympics. And I think they chose Sarajevo because the access from the major city of Sarajevo to the, all the various activities was closer than going, say, from Skopje, which is the capital of, uh, of North Macedonia, to their mountain resort. It was a, the infrastructure was a bit better. And what was the transfer like from Skopje to the resort? Uh, easy. I mean, you've got to do um, a private taxi. There is public transportation, but it's very convoluted. So it's a lot easier to just take a, a taxi from the airport. Um, and you can arrange that uh, via your hotel. Or as I did, I just rocked up and, and saw the first cab on the rank and went up. And at the time I went, it was 55 euros each way, but that was for up to four people and all the gear. So considering it's about an hour and a half's drive, um, it's not not that expensive. And I looked back um, at the prices I paid then, and I've looked forward to the prices that, as they are now, and not much has changed in that area. 
Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it was 10 years ago and, uh, you know, you sent me an email in the lead up to this. The prices really haven't changed much at all. I think the daily lift ticket price was 15 euros 10 years ago and now it's 17 euros. Is that right? Just a little bit. It was 30. It depends on your exchange rate, obviously, of of the euro to the pound. But it was 13 when I went and it's 15, approximately 15 now. So, yeah, in that ballpark, that's for sure. And what about accommodation? Where did, where were you staying? And, and very brick question this, what was the food like? <laughs> um, well, when I went 10 years ago, you know, sites like booking.com weren't as developed and the properties that they have on there weren't, uh, weren't on there. So I went, contacted the resort directly um, and they've got two hotels, the Hotel Shapka and the Hotel Slavia, which are owned and run by the resort themselves. So I communicated with them directly. There was no online booking. It was just emails back and forth. And then when I arrived at the hotel, you know, they, you know, I was the only uh, British person in, in the resort that that whole nine days I was there. So they kind of knew when I walked through the door, it was it was me and it was my booking. Um, <laughs> a, a very worn but warm hotel. You could see there hadn't been a lot of money spent on the infrastructure, but uh, the welcome was fantastic. Um, the food was plentiful, lots of variety. Uh, lots of vegetarian-based foods, you know, lots of meat, obviously, but lots of vegetarian-based foods, um, excellent quality, lots of fresh uh, produce. Um, so it was, you know, compared with some places I've been to that are a little bit out there, the food was excellent and and very, very cheap. I was kind of spending maybe five to 10 euros for lunch. Uh, breakfast was included with my uh, package and I was only paying 26 euros a night for bed and breakfast in the hotel um, and I looked as I said I've looked forward and seeing what the prices are now and if two people go you um, in and share a room you're looking at only around about 35 euros per person per night for bed and breakfast even 10 years later so those prices haven't changed much um, and then for dinner you're looking 15 to 20 euros um, or 20 to 25 euros with as much um, alcohol you can put down your throat and then once you start drinking and chatting and <laughs> and, and spending the night in one place it's not very much um, um, you know have a, a drink here in a, a pub call kind of environment you tend to choose where you're going for that evening and you set yourself down and then you know as you're, you're eating the uh, the free rakia which is their fire water a brandy right. sort of uh, drink that just keeps coming to the table as long as you keep eating and drinking. So it's uh, it makes for a good evening. And then somebody will start singing and somebody will get a guitar out. It's very much that sort of um, very relaxed, sort of just hanging out in a place rather than doing a pub crawl. Great. Well, I like I, I like the sound of all of that. And evidently, you know, it's not particularly expensive. What about you know the value, the skiing itself? Then were you were you just using lift served uh, skiing, and what kind of lifts that you know do they have there? I'm guessing it's probably not big cable cars with that kind of uh, altitude. Probably share lifts, maybe a bubble, and would you be ski touring? How would it? How did it work out? So on the lower part of the mountain, they've got two surface lifts, you know, T bars and um, and two two person chairs, um, and then just accessing the upper mountain, there's one double chair which. Um, is liable to closure because it's very exposed going over a rock face to get you to the top, um, much like uh, the Martes lift in Las Lenas in Argentina. So when when that lift isn't running, you know, you're not going to get the value if you're a good skier and looking to ski extensive terrain. But when it is open, it's phenomenally uh, good value because you're getting 600 metres of straight four line skiing, um, wide open bowls, tree line runs, 
uh, in the trees and then rocky shoots, you know, so something for everyone. Uh, tremendous views looking from the top of the mountain back to the plains that lead you back to Skopje, the, uh, the capital city. So, yeah, it's a pretty impressive, you know, just for a two-person lift, it's a pretty impressive um, payoff for, for, you know, for getting up there. And then beyond that, that sort of goes to about 2,400 metres. And then there's a smaller hill uh, that goes to 25, 25 metres. That's an easy hike. And they pieced it most days to help you get to that little promontory. And then there's a longer walk that takes about an hour or so to get to the highest point in that area, which is uh, 2,747 metres. And from there, you could drop back into the front side or you could drop the back side of the mountain and then skin back out. So I did a combination of just boot packing because the boot pack was already in or uh, getting my skis, uh, my skins and uh, my ski touring equipment out. Um, I'm, I was there for... Uh, eight days worth of skiing uh, four of the days everything was open the conditions were fantastic one day was poor visibility three days were excellent you could see everywhere the powder was uh, everything from boot top to uh, to mid thigh um, and then I had one day where the lower lift only was open I had two days where the resort was closed and but one of those I, I got up very early because it was a, a beautiful morning even though it was quite windy and I skinned from the hotel right to the very top that took me about two and a half hours and then i was the only one that skied the mountain that day i came back down and then came back and time for breakfast and relaxed and then on my final day i sort of timed it where i did a one day's cat skiing with eskimo free ride which is the longest standing uh, cat skiing operation in europe okay but um, do you know when they started then or uh, they started back in uh, mid two thousand, so they've been going a good ten years, I think, ten to fifteen years. Okay, and where where did they take you to then uh, on the uh, so cat skiing? They've got a hotel, that, so they offer um, a cat skiing package where they offer the hotel, the the uh, the food, the guiding, and the cat experience. Uh, but I was on standby uh, last day of the of the trip, and I sort of contacted them and said, "Do you have any spaces?" And they had one space free, so I managed to get on just for a day trip. Um, so they're based at the resort. They've got their own hotel, um, and then the cats leave from that hotel. So if you're on their package, it can't be any more convenient. You know, you you literally fall out of bed, go to breakfast, and get in the cat, um, and then they go to the top of the mountain initially, where you, which is accessed by um, the lifts. But then they take the cat to that higher point where other people are having to walk to. But they yep. get up there. They get up there earlier. So. Yep. They always get the first tracks in that part of the mountain, so they're not competing with anyone because they'll they'll get two or three runs before the lift um, starts to churn at about ten o'clock in the morning, and then once they've done two or three runs in the more wide open terrain, then they'll ski the backside, which is um, starts in the alpine bows and then drops down into really nicely old growth um, pine forests, so massive spaces between the trees. Not difficult at all, but then when the weather is inclement, they can continue to operate. So some days, the the two person chair won't go to the top of the mountain, but they'll be able to take the cat to the top of the mountain and ski the backside where it'll be protected from the the adverse weather conditions. Great, excellent. And you mentioned that when you walked into the hotel, you know, you they immediately knew who you were because there weren't many, let's say, uh, you know, Western Europeans there. What kind of nationalities were there were they all purely you know from from north macedonia lots of people coming up from the city um and then a smaller city called tetovo which is the um, the, the closest city at the base of the of the mountain road 
but there were also a lot of people coming in from places like Kosovo, a lot of Americans coming in for their long weekends of R and R, as they call it, the Americans Rest and Recreation, right. um, who were working for sort of NGOs um, in that sort of Kosovo region. Right. Um, I skied with four Bulgarian guys who'd normally ski in, in and around Bansko, but they hadn't had much snow that winter. So they did the same as I did. And I'd communicated through the ski forums before. And so I knew they were going and we sort of looked at each other on the slope. I was on my own. They were four together and we kind of worked out who we were. Um, and then I managed to ski and hang out with them for three or four days. Um, but yeah, pretty much it's it, it's the locals that are skiing there. And then over the last couple of, say, five to 10 years, more and more people have been uh, going with companies like Eskimo Freeride and others that have got these snowcat experiences. So that more Westerners are coming in, but still you're only talking 30 to 40 per week, perhaps. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds amazing. Another one to add to the, uh, to the bucket list uh, there. I'm going to put a lot of uh, links into the show notes. So listener, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about skiing in North uh, Macedonia, uh, then you can have a look at that uh, at um, theskipodcast.com. Um, that's brilliant, Mike. Thanks very much for that. And thanks for again for giving us another insight into one of the many places around the world uh, that you skied. My um, pleasure. Um, Hopefully I can get into a few more in the not too distant future. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. I'm just going to uh, move on now. Going to uh, put in a little uh, snippet of an interview that I did uh, earlier this week with uh, Jim Adlington. And he's a founder of Planks Clothing. Uh, a UK uh, company with a focus on sustainability. They've just done a big crowdfunding campaign. And I talked to him about his early experiences within the industry. My journey started at Kids Grove Dry Slope. So nine years old. Um, yeah, just going to the dry slope was my first first introduction to skiing. It, it's it's so interesting how so many people you know start off like that. I talked to Pat Sharples not so long ago, and I, I'll mention him again. But he obviously started off over in Rosendale, and there's so many other people like Woodsy started off at Sheffield, etc. And I think that that was you know quite a nice sort of community feel the way that slope worked down there. Yeah, like um, I think you know the UK the UK has a really strong uh, dry slope scene. And I think um, I think it's good the fact that you know a lot of good skiers are coming out of the dry slope and the dry slope scene, especially now. Well, back in the day, we used to, you know it was the only place um, you know I had access to at the very beginning. Didn't really have um, the opportunity to go out on snow or or no kind of you know no family circle that was into skiing. So we lived about five minutes from a local like dry slope council run dry slope. And uh, just got involved that way, really. Um, and it was, um, I think when we started, it was like 40 metres long with a little rope tow, so really small. <laughs> right. um, and it was all like old kit and it was all like, yeah, council run. So it was all like really old and, and kind of, yeah, not really that much fun. But I, I absolutely loved it and um, kind of started off uh, going down like, you know, there was a club there few years after um what like a, a local guy set a ski club up there and uh they kind of expanded and got bigger and bigger um so yeah just kind of going down there a lot every every night really before i kind of got introduced to snow um and it was ran by a guy called chris paul and he used to look after all the local kids that were like hanging around and started off 
Kids Grove Ski Club. Um, and that was that was the start of me, like, yeah, getting introduced into the ski scene, really. So um, you, so from there, then you decided that you needed to get a bit actual proper snow and and went out to the mountains. You did a few seasons. Yeah, so we did we did one or two ski trips, um, which because we got into like the racing, the dry site racing scene. Um, so we used to travel around the country going to going to races. But we were always like the renegade kids. Um, like we didn't have any money or we didn't have any like proper kit. Uh, we used to make our like race pads out of like drain pipes and <laughs> used to cut down used to cut down a plastic drain pipe and then strap it onto us and used to turn up in an old bus. Um, an old an old parcel um, parcel bus. Um, and everyone just thought we were like, you know, gypsies really. <laughs> Um, and everyone used to laugh laugh at us because we were on like all old kit and none of us really knew what we were doing. And we, we the team actually used to do quite well. Um, but the guy that ran it was so into like off-piste skiing. Um, and instead of us going like on a race trip, he used to take us over to Chamonix. So my first experience of snow was going to on the Grand Monte, basically. We went over wow. to Chamonix for a week. And instead of doing any race training, he used to take us um, and ski off piece. Because at that time, we were all addicted to the Blizzard of Oz. Yeah. Whether people know the Blizzard of Oz, but it I'm was sure the they will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the main reasons why a lot of um, a lot of people like headed over to the Alps, especially Chamonix at that time during the. Well, it was 1988 and then early 90s, really. So yeah, we used to go. We did a couple of ski trips to Chamonix. Uh, and then when I was 17, I, I kind of got a job and decided I was going to give up life in the UK and move over to France. And I got a job just, um, yeah, washing dishes for a, for a ski company. It was ski bound back in the day. Um, and yeah, went out to, went out to Courchevel for my first season and absolutely yeah. loved it. It was, uh, like the transition from going from a dry slope to then going to snow skied on a dry slope for maybe 15 years and then went out onto snow and it was just like this is this is easy you know <laughs> this is like this is so much fun and got addicted then really that was that was when it really started now jim mentioned there he started off his uh, ski seasons in courcheval working for ski bound in in one of their uh, hotels over there alex Irwin, another friend of the show and uh, presenter of 150 days of winter youtube uh, channel i talked to him back in the days when you could still go into ski resorts about courcheval and how it's changed in terms of apres ski over the years you know in courcheval 1850 these days if you're talking about apres ski you're probably having uh, uh, caviar and champagne rather than a beer in a British club hotel and we talk about that in this little clip. And when I was here in 96 for Apre, you know, one of our good earners was on the, you know, the welcome drinks. We used to sell a, a pub crawl to guests. And from my recollection, we used to start in the Keep, which is up there to our right from where we're sitting now, come down to Jump Bar, then go along to some of those club hotels, the Isba and uh, Gringos, and then finish in Calico, which is a nightclub place. Yes. So how many of those are still going then? Unfortunately, none of them. Yeah. If you say those words to anybody who isn't an old school seasoner and they will look at you blankly going, what, never heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. It is such a shame that the resort has 
in its own right has gone up market. Yeah. And in doing so, all the old buildings, which used to be the club hotels, yeah. have all been knocked down. Right. They've okay. literally been knocked down and rebuilt. They have been literally... If, if the English people won't rent them, the English companies won't yeah. rent them, then, yeah, well, basically, they get knocked down, sold, and rebuilt as four, five-star hotels. Yeah. Uh, and, and those bars, you know, are just, uh, they're not affordable for season worker people. No, exactly. I mean, where, where would you go in uh, Cours Cheval 1850 for a, for a drink if you're a season worker? Uh, I would say there's one place, the Hotel Olympic. Okay. Which is like, it's a... It's a bit of a secret place. It's, it's I know, it's near the, like, the port de Courcheval on the exactly. way in. Exactly. And the people who run the bar there were super nice. Yeah. Uh, but unless you knew where it was, yeah. you wouldn't know where it was. No, you wouldn't get many uh, um, uh, holiday makers there. It's a two-star hotel, I think, it isn't is it? It is a two-star hotel. Yeah, there are very few two-star <laughs> hotels left um, in uh, Courchevel. And, and if, if, even back in 20 years ago, it was the place where seasoners went where they didn't want to meet their guests. Yeah. Because their guests would never know about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and nowadays, A, if there were any seasoners up in 1850, which there aren't, unfortunately, yeah. then, you know, if they wanted somewhere reasonably priced, that's where they would go. Yeah. Uh, but you look around and you go, if I want a drink, I'm going to have to go down to La Pra, 1650, yeah. where they're still... In, in 1650, it's not so bad for, you know, you've got the, the, the Funky Fox and the Bubble Bar and I kind of think, uh, what else is uh, down the, there? The Boulot. Yeah, which is, the Boulot, OK. Uh, and there's now a bar that used to be Maribel the Copina, which yes. is like a tapas. Yes, OK. Which is a very... Uh, it's, it's not really aimed at season air so much, but it's still... Right. They still do happy hours where they're... But I, I noticed food. another, I think it was the Ski Olympic Club Hotel has closed down there as well, is that right? That is correct, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, there's an exodus of, of buildings that have just been knocked down. Yeah. And, and I made a video last year where... Courchevel does a little booklet that has the list of all the hotels in right. them with all the te useful telephone numbers and yeah. things. And I looked at one from the year 2000 and the, the same one from this year right. and compared the number of four, five-star hotels huh. like this. And there used to be mainly four-star hotels, a lot of three-stars, yeah? Jumped 20 years. Yeah. And all those four stars have gone five stars. Yeah. All the five stars have gone six stars, luxe type of hotels. Palaces, I think they're called. Yeah, exactly. It's more than a five star, a palace. A yeah. pa it's called a palace. Yeah. And you look and you just sit. And then when so somebody turns around and says, why don't the English come to Courchevel anymore? <laughs> and you go, well, here's the reason. Yeah. You know, it's just become so unaffordable yeah. that they, people go elsewhere. Yeah. And it's a shame. Um, yeah, it's a it, well for sure. It's a, it, you know you don't want to do too much of the back in the day sort of thing. No, of course. But you know there was such a great atmosphere, and you know when I was running natives, you know we used to do regular parties up here. Yeah. Um, you know it was uh, it was great fun, but it's more a shame because I think season workers, you know, they always add to the atmosphere, and you know guests love to go like say 
people wanted to escape to go to different bars. But the Calico, for example, I, you know, I saw it's, there's still a bar there, right? There, there was still, it's still a nightclub or right, whatever. Okay. But it's, uh, it used to be run by, like, English people yeah. who used to know the value of saying to English seasonaires, yeah. listen, bring your clients here, we'll give you seasonal prices, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. To, I, I think, when it initially went and was run by a French company, the barman was English, and he tried to convince them, if they had a happy hour, that doing two for one for beer for one hour kept people in there longer than that happy hour did. Yeah, makes sense, yeah. And the only thing that the French could work out was, why are we getting through so much beer for happy hour? And it's like, if you can't see the value of that, yeah. then... I'm sorry. You, yeah, you know, and, and you know, so unfortunately, uh, as far as the, the season work of life, and you know, every things change. Things change. You know, I'm not going to say that things don't want to change, but, uh, but you know, you walk. Sometimes things change for the better or, or for the worse, yeah. and you hope that they balance each other out. Of course. Uh, and you know, after if you look at it from 20 years, you think, oh my goodness, you know. Yeah, but if uh, you want to stay in a palace. And you want to shop in in uh, I walk past Valentino, uh, Christian Prada, Dior, Louis Vuitton, Prada, uh, Bulgari jewellery. You know, if that's your thing, then it is not going to make any uh, difference to you. But if you just want to go out and have a have a beer, it's uh, it's not quite what it was. Unfortunately, with those with those uh, boutiques that you've mentioned, again, they when when they think business is closed, which is maybe the end of March, they close. Right, okay. And so when you come around Courcheval in April, it's a ghost town. Actually, another thing I noticed was when I walked past all of those stores, they all had security guards working very intimid- there. Very intimidating. Yeah. If you, if you wouldn't go in there unless you wanted to buy no, something. you could window shop, but you couldn't, you know, like the feeling of going in and browsing, per se. <laughs> but are they... Are they well, why are they there? Do you think people are going to shoplift out of uh, Valentino or something? I have no idea. Yeah, it's. Uh, but yes, there is. Uh, along the pavements, there are. Yeah, as you say, very intimidating. Like people wearing black suits. Yeah. Uh, and then just with like, no, okay, I'm not going in there. You know. So. Well, I mean, I wasn't going to go in there anyway. I walked past <laughs> one shop and they had like a. A ski jacket for sixteen hundred euros or something like that. I kind of thought, yeah, you know, uh, I might, I might wait until I get down to the valley for that sort of thing. Uh, To be fair, I was going to comment on your Chanel suit that you're wearing (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) If you could see this. Oh, if a fortunate thing about podcasting is that you can't see anything like that. That's that's brilliant, Alex. Thank you very much. No problem. Okay, thanks to Alex for that. That was that was great. Um, I'd just like to thank uh, uh, Wayne Hall and the uh, the Winterize team for buying me a cuppa since our last episode. I genuinely uh, appreciate it. It takes hours to put together uh, just a single episode of the podcast. So if you do uh, enjoy the show, uh, listener, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. And uh, don't forget, if you'd like some ski podcast stickers for your helmet, or skis, or phone, or anywhere you want to stick them, uh, chairlifts and uh, bubble lifts are, are acceptable as far as I'm concerned, uh, then just email the ski podcast at gmail.com with your address and we'll post you out some for free. So um, our next episode will probably be out in early July. And let's hope we'll have some better news on travel by then, particularly as I'm hoping to go out to uh, Switzerland uh, in mid-July 
but for now, you can follow me at Skipedia and the show at the Ski Podcast, which is also on Instagram now as well. And I'd like to thank my uh, special guests uh, today, Sarah, who joined us from Morzine. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Ian, for having me. No problem. And Mike, uh, who joined us from Wales. Thanks very much, Mike. My pleasure, Ian, and always agree to listen to the shows you put together. Thanks very much. Uh, And as always, I'd like to thank Switzerland Tourism for their support. And finally, thank you, listener, for sharing this time with us. And so until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.